Thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning. As I say every week, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. Excited to have you guys in this room this morning. I think what we're going to talk about this morning is of utmost importance. Uh, before we do, just a, a matter of housekeeping. Uh, you should have, uh, if you're connected to our database, uh, received a, an email sometime uh, earlier this week. Uh, with a giving statement for 2016. If you didn't get that, email Jason, let him know, jason at crosspointptc.com. Make him aware if there's something wrong uh, with what you see uh, in terms of the numbers there and and how they uh, are intended to match up to what your giving actually looked like last year. Um, But from my vantage point, I just want to say thank you for uh, your generosity, for responding to um, Jesus's generosity toward you um, and getting on board, getting behind what Uh, what God's doing uh, in and through this church for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom going forth. Uh, Very excited about what's to come in 2017, and that is only possible uh, because of your faithfulness and generosity in 2016. So thank you for that. Um, Call you to continue to uh, be about that as we continue to plow forward. And I do believe that this series will set the stage for the gospel actually uh, motivating uh, that kind of generosity Uh, in us as we continue on as a church. Last week, we did begin a new series, and so uh, if you weren't here last week, I would implore you to go back and listen to the podcast. This is arguably uh, the most critical series that we've worked our way through in the the brief four-year history of Crosspoint Peachtree City. It's what I'd call a DNA series, what uh, lays out the heart of what we're after as a church, the vision that we have for every person who comes through that door uh, back there in the back corner of our auditorium. Um, it's one that won't make sense if you engage in just one out of four or two out of four, or even three out of four of the messages that have to do with this series. And so even if you're out because one of the four weeks you're back in the kids' wing uh, volunteering to help point kids to Jesus. Um, This is a rally of everyone to engage in the fullness of this series from start to finish because it really is a train of thought, a continuation of thought. And so I'm going to do my best to try to recap it week in and week out to kind of set the stage for where we're going on any given Sunday. But the fullness of what we're after is only going to be experienced if you go back and engage those weeks that you missed. And so I said this last week, if there's one time that I could ask you all to commit to listening to every message in a series and to know that you would respond with an emphatic yes, this would be it. This would be the one. Um, And and so if you weren't here last week, let me provide just a a little bit of a a brief recap. Um, But again, it would be to your benefit to go back and listen online if you missed it. Last week, uh, we spent quite a bit of time uh, unearthing what I hope was an explicit declaration of the gospel, what I hope was a clear layout of the divine redemptive historical drama that you and I get to be a part of by God's grace. With a series title like The Everyday Gospel, it would be foolish to not unearth what we mean when we throw around that term gospel. And so that was part of last week. The second goal of last week was to make a case for the necessity of this word everyday in this phrase, everyday gospel, um, to, to make sense of the reality that we need the gospel in the midst of the everyday rhythms of life. That's what this entire series is about. I mentioned uh, that last week that we live roughly 7.5 miles away from, uh, or I guess I shouldn't say we live unless you live in this auditorium um, during the week if you made a bed here. We gather on Sunday mornings roughly 7.5 miles away from the set of The Walking Dead, um, a TV show essentially about surviving a zombie 
Apocalypse, if, if you're not familiar with that show. Um, the fascinating thing about the context in which you and I find ourselves is we don't have to travel 7.5 miles to encounter walkers, to encounter zombies, so to speak. They're everywhere. And, and I'm not just talking about those who profess to believe that God is real and live as though uh, he isn't, though that's part of it. Uh, I'm not just talking about those who go through the, the culturally Christian motions with hearts that are far from God, though that's part of it. I'm also talking about droves of people walking through life who really do love Jesus. Maybe this is you, but are living without any real understanding of what it means to experience the power of the gospel in the midst of the everyday. Ask yourself, do, do I feel like I breathe gospel air when I come into this place only to, to then tune in next week and come back around and get that next gulp of gospel air seven days later? Or, or am I experiencing the power of the gospel in the midst of those everyday rhythms of life. That's what this series is about. This series is for everyone in this room, myself included, because we can all stand to breathe a little bit more gospel air. That's the Apostle Paul's understanding of the Christian life. Um, Going back to last week, Paul closes out his letter to the church in Rome with these words. He says this, strange words. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel... In the preaching of Jesus Christ. According to the Apostle Paul, the gospel not only saves us into God's family, the gospel also strengthens us as God's family. The, the proclaiming of the person and work of Jesus, according to Paul, has a strengthening effect on the Christian. That word strengthen carries with it this idea of being firmly established, of being solidly planted like a tree with roots that run deeper and deeper over the course of time so that we're not swayed to and fro by anything and everything that comes our way. That idea of, of being swayed to and fro I think will make a little bit more sense in the, the moments to come this morning. Paul, simply put, actually believed that we all need the gospel. Every one of us from from those who don't know and love and follow Jesus to those who find themselves swayed to and fro by the battles with sin and doubt and unbelief to those whose faith is so strong that it's being proclaimed throughout the known world. The gospel is for all of us. The gospel is not the entry ramp onto the highway of Christianity to be abandoned for bigger and better things once we're in the fast lane, once we're converted. The Apostle Paul understood that the, the propensity of the human heart is to wander from the gospel, to veer off the gospel path. He knew that because our hearts are fickle, we need to be reminded of the gospel often. Not just day by day, moment by moment, like our next breath of physical air. And so last week, I cast a vision that, that sounded something like this. What if you could go about your life so confident in God, so caught up in the wonder of what it really means to be a son or daughter of the king, so saturated in the glorious truth of who he is for you, what he's done for you, and what he promises to do for you, that the things that cause your heart to wander begin to lose their power, that the clawing after approval, control, comfort, and power begins to lose its significance, that the struggles with guilt or fear or shame begin to lose their crippling effect on your heart, wouldn't that be glorious? That's the vision for this series, and not just the series, but this church. If that's what you want for your life, this is a great place to connect. This is a great family to be a part of. That's what we're after. How does that happen? It happens by breathing the air of the gospel in the, in the midst of the everyday rhythms of life. Now, 
If that language sounds weird to you, if that language makes no sense to you, if that phrase is just off the charts of of your graph of understanding and thinking, then then I would implore you to please stick around because I think it's going to make more sense uh, even in the moments to come this morning as we continue to dive into this stuff. The goal of this morning is fairly simple. The, The goal of this morning is to attempt to help each and every one of us in this room better understand our wandering hearts. That's, that's where we're going uh, th- this morning. Um, my aim, if I could just put it very simply, is to provide us with the tools necessary to, to get under the hoods uh, of our lives and assess our own need for the gospel. And that'll make a little bit more sense in just a moment. We're all very different from one another. Yes, um, some of us share the same sin struggles, the same struggles with doubt, the same struggles with fear, the same struggles with unbelief. Some of us have similar stories, circumstances that we face in life, similar stages that we find ourselves uh, in with respect to life. But we're all unique individuals with not just a unique fingerprint, but a unique need for the gospel to speak into the midst of the present tense. Uh, And so I want to get after what it is that causes our hearts to wander this morning. What is it that diverts us individually from the gospel path? What, is that, what does that even look like? And so if you have a Bible, you can, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be in the first three verses this morning. If you're going, hey, that sounds familiar. Yes, two weeks ago we spent time in this very same passage. And so uh, I think if nothing else, we're going to see that you can come back to the, the same passage of Scripture and just mine it over and over again and find new beautiful troves of treasure within it. Um, We're going to take a very different angle this morning as we look at Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats uh, in the row in front of you nearby. You can grab one of those Bibles, open up to this morning's passage. If you own a translation that's difficult to understand or you don't own a Bible at all, please take that as the church's gift to you. One of the, the challenges as you're opening up to this morning's passage that, that I find myself facing is this. When, when, you, when you attempt to get under the hood and really unearth what it looks like in the life of a human being to veer off the gospel path, the reality, I just mentioned it, is that each of us bring a unique fingerprint to the table as it pertains to this topic. And so what that means is that If I were to unearth all of the nuanced details of what it looks like for you as an individual to veer off the gospel path, then I've probably abandoned another, I don't know, 90, 100 stories in order to do that. And so what I've got to do is actually stay in the realm of the general and ask the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do, which is to help you to unearth what those nuances look like in your own life. And so let me pray for us before we go any further, and ask the Holy Spirit to do that. God, thank you for this opportunity to gather as the church. Holy Spirit, I feel very inadequate this morning, uh, and that is your grace to me, a reminder that I can't save anyone. Um, I can't um, open the eyes of individuals in the way that you can. I can't open ears to hear. Only you can do that. Um, I thank you for your grace and kindness to me, even this week in doing that in my own life so that I'm not championing something that I'm not experiencing for myself. God, we love you. We ask you to work, to do work this morning, um, to help us to know ourselves better, and in light of that, to experience the joys of the gospel even more. God, would you do that? Holy Spirit, would you do that? 
We ask these things in the, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son. Amen. Let me just start with this. Very few people in the world as we know it find it enjoyable to dissect the fickleness of our own hearts. Right? You might be a little sick if you enjoyed doing that. That's not, that's not an exercise in normalcy for most of us, right? Most of us are really good at running from ourselves. Most of us don't like to look in the mirror proverbially for, for very long, unless you're just super conceited. But, but even if that's you, you probably still run from certain parts of you that you don't like to look at, um, certain things that are still a work in progress. And so um, we're already behind the eight ball this morning a little bit because what I'm asking uh, you to do is to not do that in the coming moments that, that we have together. I'm asking you to actually look in that proverbial mirror and be willing to see yourself in a way that maybe you never have before. And what I'm offering in return is a Christianity that actually has some lifeblood in it more than just one or two days a week or one or two blocks of time. So I think the trade is fair there. I, th- I think that if we're really willing to engage what we're going after this morning, that we have a real opportunity to have our hearts awakened to the beauty of the gospel in a way that or to an extent that uh, we have not to this point in life. And so as you look at Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Ephesians 2, is it really is a glorious chapter of the Bible. If you've ever read it before, um, you get these, these words in verses 1 through 3 that lay out the life apart from Jesus, the life prior to Jesus, and then you get to verse 4, and it's like this explosion of good news in light of. And verse 4 um, has this impact on us all the more because we read verses 1 through 3, right? If I could kind of take us up in the sky and, and get above ground for a second and kind of explain what we're after, this week would be the equivalent to sitting with verses 1 through 3 so that next week everything that follows in verse 4 would be all the more glorious, if that makes sense. We're not actually going to spend time in Ephesians 2, verse 4 next week, but you get what I'm saying? We need this morning in order for next week to to come to life in a way that uh, will be all the more glorious. And so in Ephesians 2, you you do get this contrast of the bad news and the good news, life apart from, before Jesus, and, and life in relationship with Jesus. These first three verses... They give you the life apart from Jesus, and so it's, it's very devastating language that you encounter here. And it includes three things that Paul reveal, uh, reveals that enslaved us completely before we knew Jesus. Um, it's kind of like that highlights book in the doctor's office. You can go ahead and look at verses 1 through 3 and see if you can find those three things, and uh, we'll get there in just a moment. But the interesting thing about these three things that we're going to talk about in verses 1 through 3 that once enslaved us before we came to know Jesus, they're the same three things that continue to create a dogfight as we navigate the Christian life. It's not like when you become a Christian, you, you wake up the next day in a state of holy perfection, right? If that's you, I'd love to grab a cup of coffee with you and hear what, what that kind of life is like because that's not my life. I am a slow, grueling, progressive work of sanctification. God, by his spirit, is carrying me and chiseling me, but it's not, it's not to the degree and the speed at which I would love for that to happen. I don't know if you can relate to that. 
But for all of us, there's a war to be waged as we fight the good fight of faith. The same three things that once enslaved us continue to present us with opportunities to veer off the gospel path, to wander from the gospel. And according to the Apostle Paul, those three things are as follows. The world, the devil, and the flesh. So we're going to talk about those three things. And, and I want to attempt to make some sense of those three things. And, and in order to, to make the most sense of them, I'm, I'm going to work backwards here. I'm going to go in reverse order. And so the first uh, that I want to look at is the last of, of the three that Paul mentions here in verse 3, which is the flesh. He says this. Look at verse 3. He says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. One of the things, very simply put, that causes us to wander from the gospel is us. As we talked about in the series on the fruit of the Spirit last year, if you were around, if you're a Christian, you're in the middle of a war between the Spirit and the flesh. It's an ongoing battle. When Paul uses the word flesh, he's not using reductionistic language to describe the physical human body. It's not flesh as in flesh and bone. Rather, he's talking about the sinful nature as it pertains to the whole you, the whole me. He's talking about your mind. He's talking about your emotions. He's talking about your will when those things are out of step with the Spirit. It's what Jesus drives at in the Sermon on the Mount. Very familiar passage, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus takes it a step further. He says it's not just about the surface level uh, action of murder, but there's something in the heart that's driving that. He goes on to give another example in Matthew 5. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount is that sin is not just what we see above the dirt in our lives. It's not just about our visible actions. In fact, what we see above the dirt is usually a manifestation of something problematic going on under the dirt at a heart level. James says it this way, James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There's a proneness to wander from the gospel in each and every one of us that fill this room this morning. And it's not, again, a one-size-fits-all kind of a thing. If we're going to be strengthened by the gospel, going back to that language from last week, if we're going to become more firmly established, more solidly planted, more deeply rooted in a way that we're not swayed to and fro by anything and everything that comes our way, then we're going to have to be willing to stare in that mirror long enough to get a glimpse of what that proneness to wander looks like in us. Otherwise, we're just going to spin our wheels and keep cleaning up things that are above the dirt, so to speak, and we'll fail to get to the root of the problem. I've given this example before, and I'll give it again if you've never heard it. Maybe it'll be helpful. If you have, maybe it'll solidify it for you. When I was a student in seminary, because I have this deep desire, if I'm honest, in the flesh, in the sin nature, uh, to be approved of by man, to be thought well of by man. There, there's this veering off the gospel path where I struggle to believe that I'm approved of perfectly in Christ at times. 
And when that happens, my propensity is to move into this realm of seeking that approval in other people. Now, one of the ways that that manifested itself for me when I was a seminary student is by way of the next paper or exam. I would put in way more time, way more effort to a degree that it was just unhealthy in order to get the 100. And I would find myself devastated with a 98 or a 99. I wouldn't look at the 98% worth of good work that was invested into that paper or that exam. I'd look at the one thing that I got wrong and go, how could I get that wrong? And, and, and think less of myself and, and wonder if other people thought less of me or if there was someone out there that was uh, more worthy of approval than me who managed to get the full hundred that time. Now, there came a point where there was no more, uh, no more exam to be taken. There were, there were no papers to be written because I'd finished the degree. And it would be very easy for me to go, you know what, I don't, I don't struggle with that uh, that whole grade thing anymore. Like, I don't, I don't struggle with being bothered by putting a 98 on the fridge anymore. Haven't I grown as a Christian? But do you see the danger there? Because the same, the same idolatry issue, the same approval issue under the dirt can, can just be projected onto anything and everything as you move through the course of life. For me presently, it'd be very easy to sit with the next sermon prep moment and, and to make that about how you feel about me, rather than coming at it from a, a position of acceptance in Christ and pursuing that work from, from that position. Does that make sense? It's very easy to deal with the surface-level manifestation of sin without ever addressing the root. And I'd go so far as to say, and this is dangerous, that there are a lot of Christians who perceive themselves to be growing in the gospel, to be growing, to, to, be, to find themselves being more conformed into the image of Jesus in their minds when really all that's happening is a modification of behavior above the dirt while the heart remains unchecked. And that's scary. And I, I get it, I really do, because... What we're talking about, God's really kind. He, he's given us examples in life that are really easy to direct our attention to. When, when you think about going out uh, in the yard and attempting to pull weeds up, that's never fun, is it? Again, if you enjoy that, there might be something wrong with you. Um, but because it's, it's not an enjoyable task. It's a really difficult task because here's the thing. If you attempt to pull weeds too delicately, you don't get them out of the ground, Right? But if you attempt to go at it with a little too much vigor, you just might snap the thing off above the dirt and not get the whole root up out of the ground, which was the, the ultimate goal in the first place, right? And so you have to go at it in such a way that, that it requires patience and, and this uh, sort of blend of strength and yet delicacy. It's really difficult. The same is true as it pertains to the Christian life. It's not easy to get under the dirt and get at the root of what drives us at times that, um, that, that is anti-gospel, you might say. But that is part of the philosophy and ministry of this church to help every person who's a part of this church to, to get to the root. And it's ever-changing as we change, as we go through different seasons of life. I can tell you, some of my, my root sin and unbelief and doubt issues are very different with a one-year-old and two-year-old daughter than they were before I had kids. And some of you understand that. You're at a different place in life. You go, the challenges are very different as it pertains to to my growing in the gospel. 
than they were even five years ago, maybe 10 years ago. But we really do believe as a church that, that in going after the root, we have a real opportunity to experience more of a rootedness in the gospel. That's why we spend so much time around here talking about root idols and functional saviors. And if you're around long enough, you'll go, all right, I'm starting to get that lingo uh, a little more uh, as we continue on. We want to help each and every person uh, to be able to connect the dots uh, with this church uh, in terms of being able to do the homework on themselves, you might say. We're, the, the church has become really good at going, you know what, we're going we're gonna to champion the interpretation of the scriptures and we're going to champion the interpretation of the culture. But oftentimes at the expense of championing the interpretation of the self. And that's part of it. And so that's, that's what we're after as a church, so that we might know how the gospel uniquely speaks to each one of us. And again, more to come on that next week. And so let me ask you that question. How are you prone to wander? What does that look like for you as an individual? What does the, the proneness, the propensity to wander look like in your life as an individual? In other words, what does it look like for you to veer off the gospel path as it pertains to the internal motivators, the internal driving forces within you that, that we might attach to that phrase, the flesh or the sinful nature? What does, that, what does that look like? For some, it's a wandering into sin, plain and simple. And you know your vices all too well, many of you. I know I do. May not know what's driving them. And maybe that's the homework this week, week to, go, to go home and to go, what's the why behind that? What, what's the heart level driving motivator that, that's moving me toward whatever that is? For others, maybe it's not a wandering into sin so much as a wandering into self-righteousness. Like the church in Galatia, maybe your default when you're not believing the gospel is to revert back into that thinking that you have to earn God's love. That, that Christ's work on the cross wasn't sufficient enough. Rather than Christ alone, maybe your default is to believe it's Jesus plus, And then whatever you fill in the blank with there might be very different from the person to your left or your right. Still for others, maybe it's a wandering into self-loathing. Maybe you find yourself in a perpetual battle with guilt or fear or shame. Self-righteousness declares, I'm not so bad that Jesus had to die for me. Or maybe he did, but I can contribute something to that. Self-loathing declares, I'm not so loved that he was glad to die for me. I'm the limit on the power of the blood of Jesus. It's my sin that his blood couldn't possibly cover. See how it works? We're all very different in what we bring to the table as it pertains to believing these alternate narratives. For most of us, if we're honest, we're like pinballs. We just bounce back and forth between all those things. Sin, self-righteousness, self-loathing. We're all over the place when we're not believing the gospel. The question is, do you know yourself as it, as it pertains to your propensity as an individual uniquely to veer off the gospel path? Again, if not, this church exists to help with that. That's what we're after. It's part of our DNA. It's what our af we're after in our community groups. If you stick around long enough, I think some glorious gospel light bulbs will start to go off. How the gospel matters to you uniquely will start to make more and more sense. Let me just give an example as a teaser for next week. Um, so if I could give you kind of my version, present tense, of what that language of what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount might look like. You have heard it was said. Let me give you my above-the-dirt manifestation of something that is anti-gospel in my life, okay? Um, I'm just going to expose myself for a second. Um, I tend to check our bank account balance uh, in, an, in an excessive way that communicates that there's just something unhealthy there. 
Um, that's something that if you looked over my shoulder long enough over the course of any given week, you would see. You go, oh, he's, he's going to Bank of America again. He's, he's going to check that balance one more time. Um, we use a quasi-Dave Ramsey envelope system, and it is bothersome to me when, uh, when purchases are made and they don't get reconciled to the envelope immediately. Maybe some of you can relate to that uh, if, you're, if you're wired the way I am in terms of your struggles with the sin nature. Um, I'm the kind of person that will go into despair mode when an unexpected cost hits um, because I'm a planner. I like to have things in some semblance of order. I like to know what's coming. Um, I, I don't like to be blindsided by uh, a financial hurricane uh, making its way into my path. And so God in his kindness and his grace uh, in not allowing me to, to preach a sermon that I'm not experiencing for myself um, allowed me to experience this week a moment where um, my birthday was this past Tuesday. For those of you who uh, live, have lived in the state of Georgia long enough, you know there's that thing called a registration renewal that you have to get done with the tag office that now requires the prerequisite of an emissions test on your vehicle. I went and got mine done, failed the test, came to realize that, that there was enough work to be done that I'm now at the tipping point of whether or not we should just trade in the vehicle and move on to the next one. But as you can imagine, for a person like me, all of a sudden, there's this angst going on internally. There's this feeling of, of despair. Do we have this? Are we going to be able to make, make all of this work? All of a sudden, I, I, know, I know these things are happening because uh, where I was once getting seven or eight hours sleep, now all of a sudden, this week, I find myself getting four or five. Maybe you know what this is like. Maybe it's not finances that drive it for you, but maybe you, you can, um, you go, that resonates with me in terms of, of the experience of what that does to you internally. Now let me take you under the dirt. You have heard it was said, checking your bank balance too much is, is, is an unhealthy thing. You have heard it was said that uh, excessively making sure that the envelope system is reconciled. There's something unhealthy about that. You've heard it was said. But I say to you that under the dirt, there's a control issue, Jamie. I say to you that under the dirt, there's a security issue, Jamie. And you believe that money as your functional savior can provide you that control, that security. Are you tracking with me? Does that make sense? Um, that's an anti-gospel and it's one that I can dangerously preach to myself over and over and over and over and over again. Especially when things become financially unraveled in the moment. The day I got that news about my vehicle, I had that anti-gospel dance through my head dozens and dozens of times. And that's just one small example of how it works in my life. I am a great sinner in need of a great savior. And so I could unearth example after example with you. And I would love to if it would be helpful um, in, in unpacking what that looks like in your own life. My, my form-fitted version of what it looks like to wander from the gospel, that's one, one version of that. Think about it now. What spiritual robbery it would be for me to go, you know what? Checking our bank account numerous times in any given week, it's really not the healthiest thing. I'm going to stop doing that. That kind of response leaves the root untouched and it robs me of an opportunity to understand how the gospel offers me hope in the midst of the anti-gospels that I face as a result of my flesh. Do you know yourself? Are you willing to get to know yourself 
if it means that you just might wake up to a Christianity that has a little more lifeblood in it. We've barely scratched the surface uh, with respect to this idea of our flesh causing us to wander from the gospel. Um, again, to, to go any further into it, I could give you example after example after example, but eventually we, we get so deep in the weeds that it speaks to one person and not to the entire room. And so I don't want to do that this morning. Um, we'll continue to come after examples next week. I'll give you more. I'll invite you even more into my uh, sin nature, so to speak, and hopefully it'll continue to make more and more sense. But But for the sake of our time this morning, coming back to Ephesians 2, Paul says it's not just the flesh. It's not just the sinful nature. It's not just that which is within us that causes us to veer from the gospel path. There are things outside of us. One of those is the devil who's on a mission to derail all of us. Coming back to Ephesians 2, Paul says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Most theologians and scholars understand Paul to be describing the devil and his army of darkness here. In ancient times, people would use that phrase, the air, to refer to the spiritual realm. So we're talking about spiritual warfare here. We're not the only enemies of our own joy, you might say. The devil and his minions are are on an unrelenting mission uh, to keep the roots of the gospel from going deeper in our lives. Peter says it this way. He says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing. See, Peter understands that that this battle that, that we're in against the devil has to do with the mind. It has to know with thinking, sober mindedness, with believing. It has to do with faith. Very similar to the battle with the flesh. My, my flesh, my sinful nature wants to believe things that are not centered on the gospel, that are not in line with the person and work of Jesus. In the same way, the devil and his army love to whisper things in our ears that are not centered on the gospel, to do whatever they can to get us to believe in some sort of, of anti-gospel, you might say. Satan's been doing it since the dawn of human existence, literally. You remember the story? Adam finds himself in God's perfect Utopian garden sanctuary of Eden, surrounded by a multitude of trees that are pleasing to the eye and good for for food, tokens of God's provision and love. Yet God tells Adam there's one tree, one tree that's off limits, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of judicial autonomy, the tree of self-determination, the one tree meant to remind Adam that he's not God. Satan wastes no time. He shows up on the scene, and the first words out of his mouth are what? Did God actually say? Satan immediately calls into question God's word and presents Adam with an alternative narrative to believe. It's the devil's bread and butter. He loves to call God's word and our identity into question. He did it with Jesus during his temptation in the wilderness. You recall the story, Jesus had just been baptized, declared to be God's beloved son with whom the father was well pleased. Satan shows up for a battle of wits And the first words out of his mouth directed toward God's beloved son are what? If you are the son of God. Let me just reiterate that for emphasis and clarity. God the father, this is my beloved son. Satan, if you are the son of God. Satan calls into question the trustworthiness of God's word immediately. And he manages to simultaneously call into question Jesus' very identity. Does that sound familiar? you 
What Jesus faces in the wilderness are the very things that, that you and I face daily. They're just repackaged in different ways, form-fitted for each of our individual doubts and fears. Can you really trust that God is who he says he is? Can you really rely on his character, his promises? Is his word really to be trusted? Not just his word, but your identity. Do you really believe that you're loved and accepted by God, a child of the king? You begin to see how all these things are, are intertwined, really. The flesh, the devil, and, and as we'll get to in a moment, the world. Because if you really want a better understanding of how the devil strategizes his game plan against you, one of the best things you can do is do your homework on you. Get a better understanding of your own sin nature. Satan uses that against you. He's not out to reinvent the wheel. He doesn't have to. Our flesh gives him plenty of material to work with. Another resource that I think could be incredibly helpful is to go, if you've never done this, read C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters. It's a fascinating read on how the devil strategizes his attack against human beings in form-fitted, unique ways. You have the flesh, the sin nature within us. You have the, the devil and his minion army, both presenting us with opportunities to veer off the gospel path. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time knowing where the attack is coming from. I'm just not that perceptive. I tend to want to blame the devil probably more than I should because it feels better than having to own the blame myself, i.e. the flesh, the sinful nature. But I will say this, even if you can't pinpoint the source, if you can pinpoint the lie itself, you can fight it with the truth of the gospel. Again, more to come on that next week. But before we jump into the beauty of the gospel, which we will unearth in all of its facets next week, I want to come back to this last thing in Ephesians 2. Paul says there's one more thing that presents us with the opportunity to wander from the gospel. Alongside our sinful nature and the devil, we have the world to deal with. Paul says it this way, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. According to most theologians and scholars, the course of this world is a reference to the trends of culture and society that present us with an opportunity to veer from the gospel. So we're not talking about the devil's strategic attack here. We're not talking about something that our sinful natures dream up. We're talking about the things that you and I come face to face with as a result of the day and age in which we live that present us with opportunities to wander off the gospel path. And, and yes, those things oftentimes do appeal to our sinful nature. Again, they're intertwined with one another to some degree, but they are external to us. Let me, let me give an example in my own life from the Christmas season that I think will help to make sense of this. In a matter of a 48-hour window, these are some things that, that I encountered. Um, I watched two of my favorite Christmas movies. Die Hard and Fred Claus. Um, Die Hard, beautiful gospel message of, of a man who uh, travels to a faraway land. John McClane travels to L.A. to rescue his estranged bride, um, Holly Gennaro, from the powers of darkness, Hans Gruber. Right? You see the gospel all over the place in that movie. Right? But, but then you go to a movie like Fred Claus, which is Vince Vaughn at his finest, and, and there's, a, there's a part of the narrative of that movie in which uh, Fred, if you don't know the story, is St. Nick's brother, and, and he goes up to the North Pole to make a little extra side cash and 
helps his brother kind of get ready for, for Christmas Eve. And part of his role is to stamp the folders of kids with naughty and nice stamps. And he gets to a point where he goes, I'm not going to stamp naughty on any kid's folder because I know personally of a kid who had a rough home life, got put into an orphanage, and, and that's the driving force behind his naughtiness. And, and if we could really see externally what people are going through, then we would understand that everybody deserves a pass. And there's something about that that declares the beauty of us as image bearers that is to be embraced. But there's also something about that that says the problem's always out there. The problem's not in here. There are no naughty people when, when, it, when we unearth it all. You know, it all as it all boils down, we, we come to find that, that it's, it's the world. It, it's, it's external to us, the, the reason that we are who we are. So I get, I get these competing narratives just by way of watching a couple of my favorite Christmas movies. And then even as I'm watching those movies, I, I'm checking out my Facebook feed. And this is Christmas Day. I wake up. I look. And some of you guys who are parents of little kids in the room gave your kids more than I gave my kids. All of a sudden, I see the piles of loot that your kids got compared to what my kids got. And I really start to wrestle with whether I'm a good dad. All of a sudden, there are identity issues that come by way of a picture. See how quickly it can happen? That's not the devil. That's not the flesh. That's just the world we live in, the world of social media, where all of a sudden I have things at my fingertips that present alternate narratives that I did not invite in in the first place. Some of them I did. I invited Fred Claus in. I didn't invite your Facebook pictures in. I didn't want to see some of those. There were other things I wanted to see when I embraced that social media news feed. And then later on that day, Christmas Day, I find myself at family dinner with Brooks's family. And there's a spread and it's mostly meat. And all of a sudden I'm faced with a vice because I know who I am. I know my love and it is meat. And there's a lot of it staring me down. See how quickly that happens? In the matter of, of, of a few moments, the devil and the sinful nature and the world all collide. And there's something to be preached in each of those moments, something to be believed. You can either believe the lie and embrace it, or you can believe the truth. You start to see how, how this idea of breathing gospel air actually makes sense, right? Sometimes you need a gulp of it with, with the next picture you see on your social media news feed, or the next narrative that you encounter in a movie or a TV show. They're, they're everywhere, the next commercial that promises to deliver you from your personal hell by offering you the next functional savior. Products, services, experiences in life, they're all at our fingertips. All these things present an opportunity to, to believe the gospel or to believe the alternate narrative. The flesh, the devil, the world. We face all of these things every day. You, you don't face them for a two-hour window on Sunday. You face them constantly, which is why it makes no sense to live a compartmentalized Christianity where you take a big gulp of air every Sunday morning and then tune, wait to tune in next week for your next breath of it. We need the gospel in our lives constantly so that we're not swayed to and fro by anything and everything that comes our way compartmentalized Christianity that's alive and well on Sunday but no other time in life will not work. That's what leads to a spiritual zombie-like state. God never intended us to believe the gospel 
in these compartmentalized moments that the church has championed for far too long. Rather, he intends for us to breathe the gospel moment by moment. We're going to believe something. The question is, is it going to be the gospel or not? It's going to be the, the gospel or is it going to be the competing anti-gospels, those alternate narratives? What are we going to believe? Next week, we're going to talk about what it means to actually preach the gospel to yourself. So I might bring those examples back around and let you know, what did, what did I do? What, what happened in engaging those Christmas movies? What happened in front of that spread of food? Maybe I'll give you some examples of failure and some examples of success to, to kind of distinguish the two. But there was something to be believed in every single one of those moments, something to be meditated on, something to be declared to self. We're going to unearth what that looks like. We're going to talk about the form-fitted facets of the gospel. It really is a multifaceted jewel. It is Jesus died for your sins, but it is so much more than that as you unearth the fullness of it. And my hope is, again, that we find ourselves breathing just a little bit more gospel air than we came into this series breathing. There really is good news um, this morning in the midst of the dogfight. You go, where's the gospel this morning in all of this? Well, here's the beauty of the gospel. You don't have to run from yourself, and neither do I. We can actually engage in this. We don't have to hide our eyes from the fickleness of our own hearts. We can actually grow in an awareness of what lies beneath for the sake of our own joy. Let me me say this. If you don't hear anything else I say this morning, hear this. Jesus died for you at your worst. Do you believe that? Jesus died for you at your worst. In Christ, there's nothing you can do that would cause God to love you more, and there's nothing that you have done that would make him love you less. Jesus affords us an opportunity through his gospel to really know ourselves, to not walk through life in this spiritual zombie-like state, but to have our hearts awakened to the beauty and wonder of how the gospel uniquely matters in our lives. Stick around. Next week is going to be awesome. In a moment, we're going to take communion. We do that here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. If you're, if you're not a Christian, I would invite you this morning to take your first breath of gospel air. I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe it's turning from self-righteousness and going, I can't do this thing on my own. I can't save myself. I can't bring myself into God's good graces by my own merits. Maybe it's turning from your, your own self-loathing. Maybe you've believed all along that I'm, I'm the, the one that God couldn't possibly rescue. I'm beyond rescue. Maybe it's, it's his rescuing you from your vices. I don't know what that looks like for you to take your first breath of gospel air, but I certainly invite you into that and then to come back and to keep breathing that air because that's what we're after as a church. And if you're a Christian, we say this often, but if ever there was a week to, to go, you know what, for the next few minutes of this service, I'm going to sit and I'm going to, I'm going to wrestle with that, with the Holy Spirit, and ask for God to, to unearth for me, what does that look like in my life? Can I, can I pinpoint what it looks like for the devil to attack? Can I pinpoint what it looks like for the flesh to rise up in me, the sinful nature, when it rears its ugly head? Can, it, can, I, can I pinpoint what those things, just by way of living in the day and age in which I live, tend to come in front of me from time to time? Can I unearth what the opportunities to veer on the gospel path, off the gospel path look like? And then come back next week and let's talk about what it looks like 
um, to, to continue steady on that path, to experience those roots going deeper and deeper so that we're not swayed to and fro. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.